Welcome aboard to This Week in Nickelodeon History. I'm your host, Captain Eric, and on this episode, we're going to celebrate some Nickelodeon anniversaries that have happened in between August 28th to September 3rd, out of the summer months, and back to school. Back to school, back to school, to show my dad that I'm not a fool. I've got my lunch, my boots tied tight, I hope I don't get in a fight. Oh, back to school, back to school. And I hope for all of you out there who are attending school this year, getting back into it, I hope it's a wonderful school year, stress-free, although I know that literally 100% of you are like, yeah, wishful thinking, Captain. Well, hey, wishful thinking ahead. Um, Yeah, this week we don't have too much to cover, but I'm really excited for the top five of the week, and I, I will spoil it. Uh, ahead of time. I don't mind spoiling this for those that might might kick out of the, the podcast before Captain Eric's top five. But my top five of the week, since we are covering the Wild Thornberries. No, I'm not giving you my top five Wild Thornberries episodes. I'm not ready to give you that yet. But what I am ready to give you is my top five Tim Curry performances. So stick around after we cover all the anniversaries for Captain Eric's top five of the week. But before we get to that, and before we get into this week's anniversaries, I want to cover one that I missed, although I missed for decent circumstances, I'm going to give you here. Uh, But Are You Afraid of the Dark is celebrating 30 years on the air as it first premiered all the way back on August 15th, 1992. But in, in my notes for the show... I have the the original premiere date listed as October 25th, 1991, and that is because the pilot episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark premiered as a Halloween special in 1991 before the series proper would premiere in 1992. So still, 30 years of Are You Afraid of the Dark, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I prefer Are You Afraid of the Dark a little bit over Goosebumps. For a few reasons. A, although there's no denying that in terms of, of catchier song, the Goosebumps intro is bar none, one of the, the goats. In terms of atmospheric intro, Are You Afraid of the Dark is the goat for children's scary shows, horror shows, however you want to label them as. That, that intro alone will send chills down your spine. An episode in particular, my favorite episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, just to spoil any future top five of Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes, because that, that'll happen at some point, possibly closer to Halloween time, even if an episode is not covering Are You Afraid of the Dark, but my number one favorite episode is The Tale of Laughing in the Dark, which premiered on August 22nd, 1992, which I know at the time of, of anyone listening to this is long past, but at the time of this recording, we're about to celebrate that 30th anniversary. 
And I usually watch this episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark religiously every year for Halloween. It is it is by far one of my favorite uh, spooky things to put on during the Halloween time. I will I will put it up against any other episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, uh, any episode of Goosebumps. The thing about Goosebumps that I didn't get to explain yet as far as my preference other than the intro is that with Goosebumps, they were adapting books that if you were a Goosebumps reader... You knew, you know, you knew the outcomes for. There wasn't really a surprise factor, whereas with Are You Afraid of the Dark, there's no prior source material that they were pulling from. So uh, you you were kind of just left at the edge of your seat wondering what was going to happen. And I really like the aesthetic of a group of people who may have different likes and dislikes and be a part of different groups in school and outside of this realm but they all come together with this sole love of of the the unnatural, the unknown, the spooky, which I I gotta say I'm I'm a part of that group. I'm always intrigued by the unknown. It's a dangerous place to be, but uh, but yeah, I I always wanted to be a part of my own midnight society. Not necessarily that I would have any really good stories to bring up, but hey, if I was tasked to do so and sit around a fire and tell some scary stories, although. It has been a long time since a scary story on its own has been able to send a chill up my spine. It's been a while. Like for somebody to, to recite a story to me, unless they were reciting something that actually happened and it's just something unbelievable, that has sent chills up my spine. But for a fictional scary story, I don't know. It would have to be a really good one, and I, I would I would hope for it. I want that experience. I want to feel scared. Uh, sometimes it just doesn't happen. But before we forget, Are You Afraid of the Dark was created by DJ McHale and Ned Candle, and it ran for 10 seasons of 103 episodes, including uh, a few revival like miniseries that Nickelodeon has done over the last few years using the Are You Afraid of the Dark moniker. And I, I think that's really cool. I was really excited for the film adaptation when it was announced because the idea of a, of another kind of creep show or Twilight Zone the movie kind of film where there's three different shorts that the Midnight Society are coming together and, and telling you and you're not necessarily watching a full hour and a half long single story but three mini ones with each one individually being as PG-13 shocking as they could go. I, I was excited about that idea. But I think the next best thing was this revival miniseries idea that they've had with with each one having a, a theme throughout. I like that. I haven't checked them all out, which is certainly on my list, but I have to be more in the uh, the spooky season, the spooky aesthetic to, to be in the mood for that kind of stuff. So we're coming up to it. Maybe uh, maybe it's about time. Thirty one years ago, on August 31st, 1991, we had the Nickelodeon game show. What would you do? hosted by Mark Summers, and also helped out by Robin Morella, who you may remember also helped out Mark on Double Dare as well, although she prematurely left What Would You Do before the show's end, uh, according to Summers, due to a disagreement over pay, but continued to work on Double Dare. Uh, instead of replacing Robin as an assistant for, for Mark, the concept was then changed to a, a new co-host of the day, with a child audience member getting selected to help out Mark and hand him items that he needed and whatnot. And 
Once that ran its course, they eventually upgraded to a full-time chimpanzee to help out Mark Summers. And I'm not joking about that either. That's that's legitimate. What Would You Do was a little bit different than Double Dare, although it still featured a heavy amount of, of slop and uh, pies. It was more about the pies than anything else when it came to What Would You Do, which, uh, which did have some carryover to Double Dare. But what was unique for What Would You Do was its level of audience participation. It was all about the live audience and, and getting them into challenges and to get them messy with a medley of different pie contraptions. The pie pod, the pie slide, the pie pendulum, the pie wash, the pie coaster. Like I said, there was a lot of pies on What Would You Do? It ran for two seasons of 90 episodes. 31 years ago, on August 30th, 1991, we had the final episode of Hey Dude. That's right, Hey Dude. Created by D. LaDuke, the show ran for five seasons of 65 episodes. The teen comedy was set at the fictional Bar None Dude Ranch near Tucson, Arizona, with a fun fact that I always love to mention, a part of the set you can still go and find to this day. Uh, there is still a ranch uh, that they they filmed pretty much at a ranch and had a lot of the sets not only on the actual ranch, but then they built some sets off location. And the location I'm talking about, you can find at the Tanca Verde Guest Ranch in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, there was a lot of the, the production that was filmed on the ranch. Specifically, if you were a fan of the show, the swimming pool, which was used fairly frequently for a few episodes, it is the same swimming pool you will find still in use to this day at the ranch. But a few of the other sets, like the main lodge and the uh, the boys and girls bunks, were were specifically built uh, a bit of ways away for for the TV show. Uh, I believe most of the uh, the other sets you can still find. I don't think there's any of them that are, are really truly destroyed, although they are abandoned. There's nobody, you know, using them for anything else. They were just built and left there. And if you're near the Tucson, Arizona area, if you're anywhere near the ranch and you visited the uh, the Hey Dude sets, I, I would love to hear your experiences if there's any information that you you might have. Uh, NickelodeonHistory at gmail.com is the official email for this, uh, for this show, which by the way, you don't have to just send me, you know, questions or anything like that for the, for the air. If you have any Nickelodeon experiences, any cool stories, anything Nickelodeon related that you'd like me to know and read out on the air, I would love to do that for you as well. So NickelodeonHistory at gmail.com. And yeah, I would love to know uh, if any of you have any experiences of heading out to the Hey Dude set. 24 years ago, on September 1st, 1998, The Wild Thornberries premiered on Nickelodeon. Created by Arlene Klasky, Gabar Chupo, Steve Pepoon, David Silverman, and Steven Sustarstick, the show ran for five seasons of 91 episodes. The Wild Thornberries, one of the, the biggest Nicktoons in their history, given episode count and also uh, for having two feature films under their belt, technically, which has to count for something. I mean, it lasted a long time. The Wild Thornberries was a very popular show, and it helped bring so much of the world 
to an entire generation of kids in different parts of the world too. Think think about that. Not just I'm not just talking about anyone in North America. If if you watched an episode of The Wild Thornberries and you were in Europe and it took place in Australia, you were learning about Australia. Vice versa, if you were living in Australia and there was an episode of The Wild Thornberries that took place in Africa, you were learning just a little bit about Africa. And if you lived in Africa or literally any part of the world and an episode of The Wild Thornberries took place in Antarctica, you were like, oh, (laughs) we all don't have to go there to the extreme worst conditions on this planet, in my opinion, like the extreme cold of the cold. But yeah, we, we even got to see parts of Antarctica through the lens of The Wild Thornberries. We learned about not only the places that the Thornberries visited, and I'm not saying that they were throwing hard facts at you left and right. The information you were receiving, you were almost getting in extremely subtle ways. The the animators, the team behind the show, visited the world. They got to see the places that they were designing. So when you got to see trees in certain environments, you were seeing fairly accurately designed trees in that jungle or in that forest or how the sky would look at certain altitudes. And it it wasn't information that they were just constantly pointing out. You would just, you know, soak in as much as you were looking at. And on top of all of that, we didn't even get to the main course of the entire part of the show, which is the, the animal information that we would receive based on the fact that our main character, Eliza Thornberry, has the ability to talk to animals. So beyond the fact that that we had a chimpanzee companion alongside Eliza, a best friend, Darwin, who she was able to speak to on a daily basis, but every location around the world also featured an animal that Eliza would be able to conversate with. And these animals were not used to talking to humans. Not all of them were really nice. And you would learn things about the animal that sometimes, once again, not even with the environments they would tell you about. You would just pick up as the viewer. The way the story was written was meant for you to maybe catch on to something about the animal in in the way it acts. And and yeah, there were times that Eliza would kind of point out extra stuff, but at no point did the show really feel more educational than it did entertaining. And I think that is a a fine line to be on when you're trying to bring some sort of educational value to your show. I I think sometimes if it can delve too heavy into that, it can bog down the entertainment value. But I really genuinely feel that through their entire run, the Wild Thornberries never once really felt like it, it bogged down on the educational side more than it did on the entertainment side. It was an entertaining show and found a way through and through to bring information about the world to an entire generation of kids. Um, I guarantee you, if you watched The Wild Thornberries as a kid, you picked up on something about the world that you didn't ever get taught in school about an animal, about a, a location around the world, a specific town, villages, places, reservations, something. You learned something from the show. And that, on top of the fact that I'm sure you were entertained by it as well, is is a wonderful treat. Beyond the fact that uh, our main character, Eliza, speaks to animals, why do the Thornberries travel around the world? 
Eliza's father, Nigel Thornberry, is the host of his own uh, nature show, a la Steve Irwin. He's almost like the crocodile hunter, although he is almost like if Bob Ross and Steve Irwin had a baby. And that baby also had a British accent. So he speaks with a very tender tone to the audience from the voice of the one, the only, the irreplaceable Tim Curry, one of my favorite actors of all time. Um, And as mentioned, I will be having a top five Tim Curry at the end of this episode. Alongside Nigel, though, is his wife, Marianne, who films all of his documentaries while on top of also dealing with their eldest child, uh, Debbie Thornberry, who is just playing that really angsty teen archetype. But I got to tell you, over time watching the show, never once did I really feel on Debbie's side because she was living a life that, you know, was just once in a lifetime, which I know a part of her arc by the by the end has more of an appreciation for her experience. But yeah, those those first couple seasons a bit rough. Uh, alongside the family there thus far, we also have Donnie, a feral boy that was found in the wild and adopted by the Thornberries, who does not speak through words but speaks through gibberish and is voiced by Flea, bassist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The entire family, along with Darwin, travel the entire world filming this documentary series. For Nigel, while Liza gets entangled in constant issues with whatever local animals they happen to be dealing with. And it's a wonderful show. I adore it. Next year, we'll be celebrating the 25th anniversary. And and honestly, knowing that there's about a year for that to happen, I think for that, we can plan something a bit more special than just a podcast. I, I think there's a chance to do something there. Uh, but I, I have so much love for the show. And all of the voice actors involved, I had mentioned Tim Curry and Flea, but I also want to mention Lacey Shambert, Tom Kane, Danielle Harris, and Jody Carlisle for bringing so much life to the Thornberry family, and also for getting together for the Wild Thornberries sketch on Robot Chicken. I I love when when they can actually get the voice actors for some of these characters in Robot Chicken. It just makes everything so much more mind-bending in that way. Also celebrating a 24th anniversary this year and a show that premiered on the same day as the Wild Thornberries on September 1st, 1998, we had Cousin Skeeter, created by Phil Bauman, Alonzo Brown, and Brian Robbins. Brian Robbins, the current president and chief executive officer of Paramount Pictures and Nickelodeon. I salute you, sir. You are, by the way, Brian Robbins is like honorary second mate of the Ready Crew. There's a golden stool with his name engraved on it sitting right next to me, awaiting him whenever he decides to take that place. But Brian has done so much for Nickelodeon, including create a plethora of shows, including Cousin Skeeter, as we're celebrating right now. Cousin Skeeter is a a great concept, a great show about a a kid who finds out his cousin is moving to town and flips his entire life upside down as Bobby finds out that his cousin Skeeter moves on in, who Skeeter also happens to be a puppet. Although, 
in in terms of the show, I don't remember if that's ever really acknowledged. It really isn't acknowledged of Skeeter being felt or being a puppet or anything like that. He just happens to be a puppet and everybody just accepts it, which I don't see any reason why anyone should not accept it. You should accept Skeeter because he's a puppet. Who cares that he's a puppet? Why are you even bringing this up? Why am I bringing this up? You brought it up. Don't bring me into this. The show ran for three seasons of 52 episodes. Anytime I think of Cousin Skeeter, I'm always reminded of possibly my favorite uh, kids meal campaign in the history of fast food. Uh, Nickelozone from the Burger King kids meal featured five toys based off of shows in the current Snick lineup. I believe it was it was for Snick. But the toys included were for Hey Arnold, Alan Strange, Kablam, and the new shows on the block, The Wild Thornberries and Cousin Skeeter. And these toys are incredible. It's it's like the best of the best. They clearly went to Nickelodeon and they're like, hey, give us five show ideas and then kids meal toys that would be absolutely perfect for each of those shows. For Kablam, we got an actual set of Action League Now action figures. We got a spinning Alan Strange device that showed us Alan in his alien form. We had a actual football head Arnold, a little cousin Skeeter puppet, a finger puppet, which it's just one of my favorite pieces of uh, fast food merch ever is the little Skeeter puppet, which is honestly why I'm bringing this all up. And then the Wild Thornberries was... The uh, the Convy, the Thornberry's Convy that would move when you pulled the Rhino from the back. And all five of these toys, absolute bangers. Absolute fantastic toys. Uh, and honestly, you can find these toys still in the bag. I don't even know if I would want to collect fast food toys in the bag. I think I would rather collect those things outside of the bag because what's the point? Inside of the bag, you can't really display them. They're ugly. It's like, sure, you kept that thing. And when it comes to collecting, I'm all for keeping stuff in their original packaging. But when it comes to, like, kids' meal toys, I don't know. It just feels weird keeping stuff in the bag. You can't really experience it. But anyway, let's get out of the Nickelodeon and into our next show, which is celebrating its 15th anniversary on August 31st, 2007. We had the premiere of Tack and the Power of Juju. Now, the original creator of Tack and the Power of Juju through the video games is John Blackburn. But Jed Springern is the one who developed Tack and the Power of Juju for the television. If that, uh, that makes any sense. For those that don't know, Tack and the Power of Juju actually started out as a, as a video game developed by Avalanche Software and published by THQ, but was actually produced by Nickelodeon. Which, if you were watching Nickelodeon around 2003, they heavily promoted Tack and the Power of Juju. If you purchased any of the other Nickelodeon video games around that time, there was a lot of promotion around the game. Uh, they promoted Tack 2, Staff of Dreams. They promoted Tack, the Great Juju Challenge. They had three games out of this series before there was even a TV show. So this was their, this was their video game version of a Jimmy Neutron, which had a film first and then had a highly successful television show and the idea here being they had a successful video game franchise which would then lead to a successful tv show now tack and the power of juju lasted one season of 26 episodes 
Certainly not a hit comparable to Jimmy Neutron, but I will say this. In terms of the overall village aesthetic and the characters, I found myself enjoying a lot of the interactions in the TV show, more so than the video games. Now, for context, I haven't fully beaten all of the TAC video games. I've gotten through most of them, and I enjoy the characters in the games. I enjoy the voice acting in the games a bit more than I do in the TV show. And just to uh, to answer one question you may be having as far as the voice acting is concerned, unfortunately, you'd think with all of the voice acting in the video games, they'd have a easy cast to just move over to the TV show. Instead, there's only one actor from the video game that reprises the same role as they do in the TV show, and, and that's by name as well, and that's Locke. Now, there is a character in the games called the Dead Juju, but he's renamed in the uh, TV series as the Party Juju, and I believe he also is played by Rob Paulson, but the only character who gets to just carry over in the exact same way is Locke, voiced by the one and only Patrick Warburton, which, uh, by the way, you can't replace him. You just can't, so you just don't even try. If you're if you're hiring Patrick Warburton for a character, he's locked in for that character for life, which is a good thing, because the man is an absolute national treasure. Uh, I enjoy bits and pieces of Tack and the Power Juju. I like some of the updated character models for the show, Tack in particular. Uh, I enjoyed his inclusion in some of the other Nickelodeon video games. It made sense. It it felt cohesive at the time. Uh, with with Tack being such a heavily promoted Nickelodeon video game, it just made sense to just throw him in with the rest of the Nicktoons. I do think that the Tack video game series has more than enough value to it to deserve uh, a remaster in some way, even just a updated re-release, just with a higher resolution so the game runs better, or all three of them in a package. That that would make sense to me. As far as I know, Tack and the Power of Juju was a part of the uh, deal with Nickelodeon and THQ to bring classic video games back to current consoles. I I don't see, as I've said many times before with other concepts, a, a Tack and the Power of Juju collection. You bundle it with Tack 1, 2, 3, Tack and the Guardians of Gross, which was a console video game released uh, as the show was on the air, and, and more about the show than the video games. So it really isn't Tack 4. It's almost like a spinoff. And then just include any of the handheld versions if you can. And boom, you have a collection, you sell it for like 40 bucks, 50 bucks. Yeah, you have a lot of games in there, share a lot of value. Why not? Add some quality of life, you know, experiences like being able to pause and rewind. And boom, voila, you have an instant hit. Tacking the power of collections. That's what I'm calling it. We are actually ending this week with a show that ended four years ago on September 2nd, 2018, Star Falls, created by George Doty IV. The show ran for one season of 20 episodes. And as mentioned earlier, Captain Eric's top five of the week is a big one for me because it's about one of my favorite actors in the history of television, film, on stage, wherever you can find an actor, he's going to be in my top five, Mr. Tim Curry, who I absolutely adore. Um, this fifth slot here, I could have placed with a few other characters, like Long John Silver from Muppet Treasure Island. Uh, that that could have 
came up for this, but I have to be honest with you. There's a character that Tim Curry played that not even because of Tim Curry, well, he did play the character, but there's a reason why I think of Tim Curry and this character so much, and it just has nothing to do with Tim Curry. And let me explain with my number five choice, and it is not because I host a Nickelodeon podcast. I am serious about this. Number five is Rex Pester from the Rugrats movie. And if I can explain, I didn't own a ton of video games as a kid. I owned, you know, a decent amount when my mom was able to purchase one or two for me. But it it happened mainly for my birthday, Christmas, and otherwise for just uh, maybe a good grade. And that was kind of rare, to be honest with you. Um, But one of the video games I had and I cherished and played a ton of was the Rugrats movie activity game, which included various mini-games based off of the Rugrats movie. One of these mini-games was about Reptar destroying cities and was basically um, Dance Dance Revolution or, for something more modern, uh, Friday Night Funkin'. It was, you know, you press the button when you're supposed to and it makes uh, Reptar destroy the city. Uh, alongside Reptar destroying the city, you also had a song that was sung in the style depending on the city that Reptar was in. Well, what does this have to do with Tim Curry? Well, from the Rugrats movie, the reporter, Rex Pester, who was voiced by Tim Curry, was basically the intro and outro for this stage, for Reptar. You would have an appearance by Rex Pester at the beginning of the stage, and then when you finished, you had an appearance of him by the end. Tim Curry did not voice Rex Pester in the Rugrats movie activity game, but the voice actor that they got for the character sounded enough like Tim Curry that for me as a kid, I was constantly subjected to hearing Rex Pester's voice. And I loved Tim Curry so much, even as a young kid, that I almost played that minigame more than the others, specifically for the songs and for the little Tim Curry bits. Now, I didn't realize until later on, like, oh, wait, that that isn't Tim Curry. Okay. But fair enough. Either way, the damage was done, because even at this age, when I hear of Tim Curry, one of the first things that flashes in my head is Rex Pester, who, by the way, even his appearance in the movie, let me just argue for the actual character now, because we're talking about one of the most obnoxiously animated characters in the history of of film. Rex Pester, for his very brief appearance, makes his namesake known. He is an absolute pest. I mean, just watch his interactions with Betty DeVille and how he treats the situation. I mean, he's the he's the catalyst for this situation from going from, okay, even though this is an emergency, we're kind of calm about this, to all-out anarchy. So I I have to put Rex Pester as number five for me personally, because really that experience of the game, but I I love that appearance in the movie too. It really is an iconic moment for the Rugrats movie. Uh, But from here on out, these are going to be some of the the all-star heavy hitters for Tim Curry performances. With number four, since we already talked about Are You Afraid of the Dark, and the fact that I already mentioned that my favorite episode is about a clown, then it shouldn't have many of you running for the hills when I mention the 1990 TV movie adaptation of It. 
and Tim Curry's performance of Pennywise the Clown. Now, Bill Skarsgård's Pennywise from the recent film adaptations of It uh, is is a performance that's going to be remembered. It's a very creepy version of Pennywise, but Tim Curry's Pennywise has my heart tied up in a knot, and he is laughing his little buns off at the top of it. (laughs) The thing about Tim Curry's Pennywise is that he is genuinely a good clown. He's a really fun clown. He's an approachable clown. He's a clown that you don't really feel like is going to stab you or kill you or do anything that's, you know, bad for your well-being. Although you end up finding that that's all wrong. He is totally capable of all of that. But there's something more approachable about Tim Curry's Pennywise than Bill Skarsgård's, which I think helps for a clown, especially when between the two of them, Tim Curry's is the funnier between the two. Excuse me, sir. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do? Well, you better let the poor guy out. There are certainly some cheesy bits in the TV movie adaptation of It, especially the ending. I I can't really say anything about that. But as far as any of the Pennywise moments, Tim Curry plays them to perfection in a performance that'll be remembered by horror fans for forever. It'll it'll be remembered forever. Even when Bill came on the scene and, and wowed audiences for a whole new generation, for, for anyone who hasn't seen it, Tim Curry's Pennywise is still remembered. Uh, and that brings us on to number four on my list, Wadsworth, the butler from Clue. And yes, I'm talking about Clue the board game Probably my favorite board game in in the world, one of, that and Monopoly, and I know that sounds crazy, but if you hate Monopoly, I genuinely believe you're just playing the game wrong. You're just playing by terrible house rules that arbitrarily make the game super long and unlikable, and if you just play by the game's set rules, you'll have a fun time. You guys are all out there being french fries when you should be a pizza, because... When you're a pizza, that's when you have a fun time. When you're french fries, you're gonna have a bad time. Wadsworth is the centerpiece of the movie. He is the character that is the unknown. We all know the various characters that are showing up to this mansion. Miss Scarlet, Miss Peacock, Professor Plum, Colonel Mustard, Mr. Green, Mrs. White. We all know those characters. And we're not too surprised to find a chef and to find a maid. But then there's this butler character who seems to be really in control of the situation a little bit more so than he should. And let me tell you, the performance alone of Tim Curry, especially during the climax moments of the film when he is energetically running through the the corridors of the mansion piece by piece, going through the events that have preceded, it's just a masterclass. Watch Clue. If you have never seen Clue, watch Clue. I believe it's free on Pluto TV. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. I don't mean for that to happen all the time. Uh, Watch Clue. Find a way to watch it if you've never seen it. It, It's an absolutely wonderful film. And a, a quick trivia fact, the end of that movie includes three 
possible endings that could have happened. And when it was originally released, depending on where you were in the world watching that movie, you actually only just got one of those endings. And that caused just confusion from people who went out and said, well, I this was the killer for mine and this was the killer for mine. I think that's absolutely hilarious. If you watch the the home release version, it just kind of pieces all three together as, you know, two of them really not being non-canonical and there being one canonical ending of the three of them. So watch Clue. I, I just can't say that enough. Uh, but number two, we've already talked about him today, Nigel Thornberry. Not only one of the best Nickelodeon dads, one of the best animated dads, but one of the best TV dads in the history of television. Nigel Thornberry, not only a caring individual for the animals and nature around him, but also cares an extreme amount for his family and their well-being. He respects the world and the predicament that he's placed his daughters in. But think about this. On top of, of hosting this show, in the calm manner that he does, he's also, in some regards, successfully raising two girls in this incredibly weird environment and it also adopted a feral child from the wild and is able to maintain this this family structure on top of also bringing in a chimpanzee into the family as well. Sure, why not? Throw a cherry on top of that Sunday. And if I could say one last thing about Nigel Thornberry, it's that even though the Rugrats Go Wild movie hasn't aged the, the best with me, there's one scene in that movie that I absolutely love and adore and every time I watch it it just makes me appreciate the movie 10 times more and it's the scene with Nigel and all of the Rugrats all of the babies stranded in the submarine when Nigel realizes that the oxygen level is is depleting and he's going to be in a situation where these kids are unfortunately they might not make it and that scene, that moment with Nigel Thornberry is is one of the most beautiful of that character's entire existence. So if you haven't ever seen that scene, please even go check it out on YouTube if you can. But my number one Tim Curry performance is, of course, and you have to have guessed this if you are a Tim Curry fan, Dr. Frank N. Furter from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, who played the character in both its original stage form and then the iconic film adaptation, which to this day is still being played in theaters. It, it's been a couple decades, and you can still find a theater within 100 miles of you playing the Rocky Horror Picture Show every single Saturday night. And on top of that, it'll be a packed house with, depending on where you are in the country, an entire extra performance with the crowd to even people going in front of the screen and reenacting the entire movie as it's happening and the crowd just goes bananas the entire time if you have never experienced rocky horror picture show on the big screen i implore you find a theater on a saturday night playing it on a friday night but on a saturday night specifically he's singing he's dancing he is the star of the show frankenfurter is the man his lust is so sincere and with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to call it for this week in Nickelodeon history. I appreciate you for coming aboard 
and listening along. You can reach Captain Eric at NickelodeonHistory at gmail.com, where you can also follow me on Twitter at I'm Ready Podcast and on Instagram at SpongeBob Podcast. Please check out my other podcast, I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast, dropping every Thursday on most conceivable podcast platforms. And don't forget to subscribe to the Captain Eric YouTube channel, where you can also hit that bell for notifications whenever the captain puts something out. You can also purchase new and updated merch at the Redbubble link, either in the podcast description or in the link from any of my socials. Anything that comes in from my projects go directly back into my projects, and it's always appreciated. As always, everyone, please stay safe, be kind to one another, and come aboard again to another episode of This Week in Nickelodeon History. On the Lord Hut, here we are, Nick. On the Lord Hut, here we are, Nick, Nick. On the Ricky Tiggy Low, while living number one, Nickelodeon.